Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Ferrari driver Carlos Sainz topped the second day of pre-season testing in Bahrain, but it still appears to be advantage Red Bull with Sergio Perez setting an ominous pace. But has the competitive order become any clearer, and why is the dreadfully named RB V-Carbo 1 attracting some attention? I'm Ed Straw and joining me to explain all are Scott Mitchell Malm and Samarth Canal, with help from Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well Scott, we're right now, Ferrari on top. Going to be a great year for Maranello. Yep, 2024 is fixed. We have nothing to worry about. It's going to be a great season of fantastic battles. And who knows, maybe Red Bull will even be able to win a race or two as Ferrari canter to the title. Excellent. That's uh, the, the upbeat positivity about Ferrari faded immediately there. And we should welcome you, Samarth, because this is your first The Race F1 podcast. Yeah, it's weird to see where the magic is happening. Uh, on the, where, is the, where is the magic <laughs> yeah, happening? Exactly. Please, Elaborate. should I reveal your location on the? Well, we're you know we're in the heady heights of Bahrain. It's spectacular, and and I've so much energy from you, Ed, at this time of night. It's brilliant. It's good to see. I have to sort of uh, ramp myself up for uh, for broadcasting when really I probably just want to go to say, oh, podcast actually, ed, po- podcast ed is a very enthusiastic genre of ed yeah I'm quite enthusiastic sometimes and uh, <laughs> I must say this is quite a good recording time so I'm quite happy with that and also means everybody gets to listen to it uh, in good time before day three gets going but are you excited about Ferrari given Carlos Sainz was quickest are you waving the the red flag um I, I'm waving the caution flag I mean, it, just the yellow. <laughs> Does that analogy work? No, because it um, broke down from the start. Isn't the Ferrari flag technically a red and a yellow flag? Yeah, so it's the slippery surface one. <laughs> That's the one I was trying to think of that flag. But yeah, I mean, it's day two of testing. Who's going to read into that? Are you guys reading into that too much? We are absolutely reading into that, and I'll tell you who reads into it more than anyone else and better than anyone else, and that is Mark Hughes. He's been number crunching in his bunker back at base, and he can actually give us perhaps a little bit of reason to to find some optimism for Ferrari in terms of his long-run analysis. So let's hear from Mark Hughes. Day two of testing gives us a slightly more detailed data set to work from than the opening day. And although it was Carlos Sainz's Ferrari at the top of the headline times, what do we find when we delve beneath the surface on a day when Max Verstappen didn't get to drive the Red Bull? The scheduled afternoon appearance cancelled to give Sergio Perez more cockpit time after his morning run was curtailed by the red flag. The pace comparison presupposes, of course, that Red Bull and Ferrari are using the same base weight for their low fuel laps, which may not be the case. But recent history suggests that the two teams actually do run quite a similar fuel load, and we derive this from any variation of how they've qualified in the opening races compared to their calculated pre-season testing performance. And last year in Bahrain qualifying, the gap between the fastest car of those two teams was quite similar to how it had looked in testing. The patterns over the last couple of seasons suggest that Mercedes and McLaren run slightly heavier with their base weights in testing and Aston Martin slightly lower. That may not necessarily be the case this year, of course, but it's the best we have to go on. There's also considerable variation in their programs, but Red Bull and Ferrari uh, both attempted some form of race simulation, giving us further clues. But let's look first at single lap pace. Everything we've seen so far suggests the new Ferrari is very quick over a lap, just like last year's car, which scored six poles amid a season of total Red Bull domination. Carlos Sainz reports that although this car is still something of a lively handful around this track when pushed, it feels less sensitive to the strong winds, which are such a feature here. A watching Alex Albon commented that the top teams seem to be able to switch the wind off compared to how his Williams feels. This is to do with the sensitivity of their downforce in yaw, something which Ferrari technical director Enrique Cardile confirmed was a major target for improvement in the conception of this car. When analysing the single lap pace, we also need to normalise for the tyre compound differences today because Science used a soft C4 tyre, not a tyre not which will be used in the race weekend, to set that session heading time, whereas Red Bull 
and Mercedes and McLaren all stayed with the C3, which will be the allocated soft for the race. How much quicker was the C4 over the C3? Sainz found around 7 tenths when he switched, between, with the run separated by only around 15 minutes. Later in the day, RB's Daniel Ricciardo made the same switch with only 10 minutes between his last C3 run and his first C4, and he found around 6 tenths. So if we take that 6 tenth tyre boost as a guide, we'd find that Sainz's best lap normalised to give a tyre equivalence to the second fastest Sergio Perez, would still have the Ferrari fastest, albeit only by around a tenth of a second. But that's over Perez, not Verstappen. Last year Verstappen qualified around a tenth and a half faster than Perez here, but his seasonal average was around three tenths advantage. So if we put a theoretical Verstappen pace advantage over Perez in the equation, it puts the Red Bull narrowly on top by between half a tenth and quarter of a second. Equally, we might make an adjustment for the Ferrari as last year Charles Leclerc reached 0.18 faster than Sainz. Either way, it looks very close on one lap pace between those two cars, but only on the assumption that Red Bull wasn't disguising its true pace by running heavier or with the less aggressive engine mode. Lewis Hamilton made good progress with the Mercedes in the afternoon, working the way it was initially a difficult balance to a much better behaved one, but his best low fuel lap was around half a second adrift of Sciences, even allowing for that 6 tenth tyre offset. Lando Norris and the McLaren was a further two-tenths off the Mercedes, but with the proviso that both these teams have historically run testing slightly heavier than Red Bull and Ferrari. Daniel Ricciardo's RB was again best of the rest of the big teams, and although his fifth fastest time was aided by that C4 tyre, doing the six-tenth offset still puts him on around the same time as Lance Stroll's Aston Martin. But even if we're making a Lonzo allowance for the Aston's time, that's still around half a second off McLaren. Alpine is making progress with a car very different from last year in its traits with that new rear suspension, but run for run in its current state it seemed to be around a tenth of the RB in the Aston, with Sauber, Williams and Haas following on in that order. So much for one lap pace, the initial long runs paced paint a slightly different picture. Both Red Bull and Ferrari made race simulation runs at much the same time and using the same combination of C3, C2 and C1 respectively for the three stints. In this comparison, the Ferrari looks suspiciously good, with a respective pace suggesting Carlos Sainz would have beaten Sergio Perez by a full minute over a 57 lap distance. We can't believe this is an accurate representation of Red Bull's true pace, that's what the day two numbers say. Let's wait for day three to see if there's apparent evidence as confirmed or reputed. So, Scott, some optimism there from uh, Mark about Ferrari's pace. But obviously, it's looking now a bit like it's it's Red Bull ahead. And really, it's a question of by how much. And then there's that second group that Ferrari's in, McLaren's in, Mercedes seems to be in. It, it's, it's starting to go from very amorphous to slightly more of a, of a pattern as we move through testing, isn't it? Yeah, I don't want to undermine the what the numbers say, but they like anything through testing the numbers offer a snapshot of a snapshot of the day and how that day played out you then have to apply context and a lot of the context is is missing we don't know what the two teams were doing with engine modes we can't we can't be sure what other factors might have played into why certain offsets were as were as large as as they were i can say from speaking to a lot of people in the paddock that regardless of what the numbers say the expectation is that Red Bull is in front and potentially in front by quite a reasonable margin. There's a couple of people fearful they might even be bigger than last year. And people at Ferrari think that as well, we should add. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what both the drivers said today, I think Charles Leclerc said that it is, uh, unfortunately, it does look like Red Bull is still quite a bit ahead. Sainz said he wasn't afraid, but said, while a personal goal for him is to fight for the championship this year, realistically, if you look at what Red Bull's brought, that isn't or might not be possible and you speak to different people you obviously get different estimates but the one consistent thing across every bit of not necessarily an outright pecking order but scoping out the lay of the land everyone has Red Bull in front and this isn't just journalists and people don't know I've spoken to a couple of team bosses um, spoken to other insiders within teams everyone thinks Red Bull is ahead they think that they've moved on from last year it's not just an improvement they've They've, they've, they're still the benchmark and I think everybody expected them to be the benchmark realistically but it's just there is there is just a bit of a wow factor about this car and while I don't think you'll see it in the lap times 
either one lap or a stint that Perez did today, there's still a big emphasis on the ease with which Verstappen did his day one lap time and just a lot of stuff that's emanating from that team and everything about the car, the way it looks, the way it's driving on track when it's dialed in and the performance and the reliability is indicating that that is the car to beat by some margin. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, Samarth, really, it's a question of who's closest, isn't it, to, to Red Bull, not a question whether they can challenge them at this stage, at least. And I think the noise from Ferrari is pretty good. And I'm not going to argue with Mark Hughes. You know, the optimism is there. And while it's only day two, uh, yeah, Ferrari have done a good job. Now, the battle between them and Mercedes is is what we're talking about. Between them, I it's splitting hairs at this point. I can't see who's on top there. Um, I don't know what you've gleaned from day two, but that Mercedes really haven't shown their hand is what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think I think McLaren... Are, I would throw McLaren, McLaren into the are mix, there. Yeah. I'm pretty sure McLaren and Ferrari are fairly close. And I think both teams actually think they're fairly close. But you're right, though, that Mercedes is a little bit more of a of a wild card. And in fact, I talk about this a bit with Gary Anderson in the Race Members Club podcast we've recorded about the Mercedes. Not looking ultra convincing on track, but Scott, George Russell was talking about the improved stability of the car, that rear axle weakness they've they've improved. So they've made a gain. The car's working quite nicely, but it's not completely all things are perfect now. There's a lot for them to learn with that car still. And I guess we should perhaps expect them to be a little less dialed in with the car. And that's certainly what it looks like from trackside. I would say that applies of the teams chasing Red Bull, mostly to Mercedes, certainly. But it also applies to a lesser extent to Ferrari and McLaren. Maybe even an Aston Martin type that's hopeful of sort of getting into that fight and sniping at Red Bull or sniping for podiums a, a, a little bit. Because while the Mercedes definitely... The Mercedes feels like it has the most headroom versus where it is now to where, if it's got everything right, where it could be. Because I think it has made the most changes if you could factor in mechanical and aerodynamic. And there's, that's just the stuff we can see as well. Andrea Stella at McLaren has said this a million times, I think, since he became team principal, but said it again this evening when I spoke to him, that this rule set is, is about millimetres and the, 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 the larger stuff that we can see does have an impact and we'll be bringing a lot of the performance that we've seen on the RB20, but there's a lot of stuff out of sight as well. That will all have changed for every team. Well, that's the bit that we can't judge the extent of. And it might well be that what Red Bull had in in its locker last year when it wasn't bringing new parts to the track means that Red Bull has overhauled so much of that car, including maybe the underside of the Red Bull has been overhauled just as much as... I mean, how scary would that be if the floor and everything has been reworked in a way that the, the side pod has or the engine cover? So it's possible that Red Bull have moved the game on significantly. But theoretically... Mercedes should have the most room to improve. Ferrari should have a decent amount of room to improve as well. And McLaren, given that they're going to be bringing upgrades through the season designed to further improve the weaknesses that they think they've started to address, you, you know, your, the knife-edge characteristics, the slow-speed corner weakness, that kind of thing. There's room kind of for everyone to raise the bar. Mercedes is that one that, for, for me at the moment, with that biggest unknown. It's that fascination of... Both the drivers now are consistent in saying it feels nicer to drive than last year. Hamilton backed it up after his first day in the car. It's really fascinating to see where they can get that car to because it's all well and good saying that now on the first day or two of testing. But as the fuel comes out or even as the fuel goes in and they start to do those really long runs, that's when you're going to find those weaknesses because you'll be putting the car on the limit, whether that's over one lap, pushing it hard when it's lighter or when you're exposing its weaknesses and deficiencies because you put all the fuel in and you're doing a race run. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we're still, they're still learning in that regard. And we certainly on the outside uh, are still, uh, still trying to un- understand that. Somehow, there was an interesting bit today. Well, I say an interesting bit today. It was probably the opposite of interesting when uh, <laughs> our old friend Drain Covers arose again, literally. Oh, boy. Did you enjoy that moment? Um I think Fernando Alonso did a really good job of dodging it, by the way. I'm just going to put that out there. That always happens. It's always Fernando Alonso dodging it. And then a Ferrari hits it. I don't think he's ever seen a drain. And, you know, I think it's just bad luck. Uh, There's some conspiracy theories going around about drains hating Ferrari or maybe (laughs) vice versa. 
Uh, it was an unfortunate incident. And, you know, I'm glad they took the time to fix it. Let's just say that. Um, At some points, there were as many as 16 people circled around that hole. I was about to ask. That they had, they had angle, multiple angle grinders were there. They had, uh, they had the welding kit. They had some, a roll of duct tape, which I was very reassured to see. It wasn't used, but I was pleased it was there. I was standing helpfully a few metres away watching them and taking photos, which they, they enjoyed very much. And Gary was shouting some encouragement as, as well. And, and they had a leaf to, blower. You seem to know an awful lot about this and seem to be awfully excited about the drain cover coming loose. Did you have any role to play in the drain cover coming loose? I don't. Were think, you trying to inject some life into the morning of testing? I don't think I was. Uh, well, it was just after twelve. I think the drain cover lifted. Were you trying to inject some life into the early afternoon of testing? More accurate, yes. Although technically speaking, that was the morning session, and then it was the afternoon session. So Were you trying to inject some life into the morning session of testing? <laughs> this could run and run, unlike the session at that particular point. But yeah, it was just. I mean, because we were watching uh, myself and Gary Anderson at Turn Eleven at that point. Actually, we were around at the exit of Turn Eleven, and this was on the run into it. But it's funny because I'd just taken a photo of. Uh, of Leclerc to send into our live coverage saying oh he's using a lot of the track width on entry and then I think it I don't think that was the lap he hit it I think it was the next lap round he hit it I'm not 100% sure but it, it was certainly a, a similar sort of time but I, I don't think he was the only one doing that and, and lifting it so uh, yeah it's just it's amazing how often that happens though isn't it that these drain problems seem to be happening with greater frequency it's terrifying as well whenever it happens it's genuinely terrifying as we saw in Vegas I think um, on the race live coverage, they did ask, is Ed psychic? So I'm, I'm starting to wonder now, maybe you are the reason the drain covers keep flying off. Well, exactly. And people can find out if I'm psychic when I do a, a range of psychic shows touring around the UK uh, in the next off season as a lucrative uh, sideline. I can do a few cold readings, I'm sure, and uh, get, a, get a few quid off people. But uh, no, I'm not actually going to be doing that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it, it's just another one of those things. And it? it was quite a long delay. And they did a good job of repairing it i have to offer this detail because i was there watching it but it was the, the big problem was it because it was a it was sort of those long narrow drains that was running down the the, the sort of side of the curb and I, when it had lifted it had taken some of the the kind of edging that it sits in so it's not just a hole with a cover on top of it it's got to have something obviously to support it and they were having to repair that and i think they did a pretty good job at sort of mock the fact there were 16 of them standing around it at times three of them seemed to be doing the work but eventually they they got it there and there were no more problems so it happens i can't remember that sort of thing happening here in, in recent years so one it's of those a good things. reminder of the fact that it can happen at a quote-unquote proper circuit yeah because the obviously vegas came in for a lot of criticism f1 and the fia came in for a lot of criticism there and the last time it had happened i think was would have been azerbaijan which was another street track but before that it was it was sepang um when it the Haas, when, yeah. when when yeah when the Haas hit it and i think it's easy for that to get kind of overlooked sometimes it, and it's all I understand why people say, oh, this shouldn't happen, blah, blah, blah. How how was it possible? But it is, like it just is, isn't it? And I think if you look at that range of circuits that we've seen it now in recent years, Sepang, Baku, Vegas, Bahrain, it's quite a wide range there in terms of age, in terms of um, regularity of use, in terms of maintenance, in terms of how long it's been since it was inspected or whatever. So, yeah, it, it it can literally happen at any time. The one thing that would potentially help with avoiding it is, like, you you could argue that that like that being hit on this occasion wasn't quite as a uh, egregious as signs hitting it in Vegas because signs drove over something that was in the middle of the track, and I think Leclerc kind of sort of basically had to go half off track to to, to hit this one. Um, it raises the question of whether the driver should be allowed to use that bit of track. You know, if that curb was raised, would it stop anyone going out there and hitting this this kind of thing? But obviously that's a separate issue altogether. Genuine question, is the ground effect era going to exacerbate that problem with the vacuum under the car? I suspect it's exerting a little bit more uh, lift, yeah, potentially. It could well be that. That could be playing a part. And yeah, that's just... Uh, <laughs> one of the unintended consequences of these rules. But at the same time, even you always had ground effect under these these cars before as well. It's just not quite as, as powerful. So I'm not sure how big an effect it is. But yeah, it's it's just one, one of those things. And to their credit, obviously they, they stopped running. They had an early lunch break and 
they did a good job to fix it and there were no problems afterwards these things can't be just magically uh, fixed so they did do a good job and yeah it was good to uh, to get a good afternoon of running in and before we move on to hearing from our f1 technical expert gary anderson let me remind you about our great the race members club offer if you love this podcast and want extra audio content as well as loads of other things like early access to bring back v10s and an ad free web environment then the race members club is definitely for you right now for a strictly limited period you can get a month's membership for free and after that the normal monthly price is just 2.99 which we hope you'll find fantastic value loads of good stuff planned over the coming months and there's a lot of stuff in the archive for you to dig into as well including a recent members only q a and a podcast i'm also recording today with gary anderson with trackside observations so to sign up today click the link in the description to this episode well, I'm joined now by Gary Anderson. We're not long back from the circuits. What was catching your eye today, technically? You were able to look at the cars again, study some photos, took a quite deep look at the RB. So is that a car that you're particularly concerned about? There's lots of suggestions it might be a Red Bull clone. Um, I'm not concerned about it, no. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about it in the pit lane about how close it is to to last year's Red Bull, you know, is it a, a clone? Is it a copy? Have they got information that they shouldn't have? I mean, the regulations are pretty black and white on it as far as what you can use of somebody else's and what you can't use of somebody else's. Basically, you have to do your own aero yeah. and everything else, give or take, is fair game. You've got to do your own monocoque. But basically, the aero is the absolute key thing you, you, you can't copy. Yeah. Well, you know, the monocoque is a major aerodynamic part of the car. So really what you see, you've got to do yourself. The upright assemblies, the wishbones, the gearbox, hydraulic system, and lots of that sort of mechanical stuff, which really and truthfully is is something that can let you down, but it doesn't play a big role in making you go faster. You know, you obviously we talk a lot this t- this last couple of years about um, platform control and how the suspension geometries and the antis, anti-dive and anti-lifts all work to try and control that aerodynamic platform. That's all part of the suspension. Um, but it's it's you know it's it's pretty black and white as to what you can use from from what what the RB can use from Red Bull um, and what they have to do themselves. And I went through it in quite detail today, you know, and looked at the car as a visual aerodynamic concept. And I think your car's you know it's different in every way. You start at the front wing; it's a completely different span-wise loading, um, which then affects the floor, the leading edge of the floor differently. Um, yeah, and it all starts there. You know, that's that's the first part of the flow. With the flow coming off the front wing, the rest of the car has to cope with. Um, and then you go through into the side poles and that. And they, they are, you know, like nearly every other team, they are a follow-on from Red Bull in, in 2023. Um, nothing wrong with that. It looked pretty successful, the Red Bull in 2023 to me. So you would take a, you know, a fair amount of uh, visual input from it, as every other team has done. So I see nothing more... Um, sort of red bullish on their car than I do on anybody else's car so I wouldn't worry about it whatsoever I'd say it's yeah, good good job well done and financially for both Red Bull and for uh, for RB you know it's financially better for them to share those mechanical components because why do it all yourself and the big thing about that is as well like most other teams that that share stuff even Aston Martin for example they have their the gearbox and rear end of, uh, of Mercedes, it ups the size of your team. Because while you haven't got people designing that, you don't need them because you're buying it in from somebody else. It doesn't really necessarily save you loads of money because you're not paying those people, but it does mean that your team gets a little bit bigger. You don't have so much to do. So it's a positive thing for a small team. Um, at the end of the day, whenever they come to actually challenging Red Bull for race wins, um, might be a different story down the pit lane then, but we'll, they're not ready for that yet. <laughs> well, that's what Christian Horner was saying he wants. He wants them to be a competitor uh, for them. But the car looked pretty good on track. You can hear a little bit more about our trackside impressions from the special podcast we've recorded for the race, Members Club, based on what we've seen today and yesterday. But also, technically, Gary, you're having a look at the Mercedes front wing. As you originally said when we talked about the car at launch, yep. you were happy it was legal. I agreed on that, having looked yep. at the regs, and it just is legal. Now you've seen the thing up close. Yep. It's absolutely fine, isn't it? And it's all about the the, the way they've configured it. You, there's, there's, I think, three rules you picked out that, yep. it's, uh, that it had to 
comply with and, and it does yes and, and, and even without that little strip that they've got attached to the uh let's say the third element and close to the nose i think it's still legal as well because you know it says it's a, it's a maximum of four elements um and and that's fine they, they have got four out, outboard um but they've got three inboard so you know maximum to me means that you can't have more than four but it doesn't say you can't have three or two or or one if you want to so it'll be interesting to see because um, there is a chance that you could take it a lot further, um, which obviously might be the the sort of it might have opened the door here for someone else. Um, which I think the FIA and Formula One, um, Pat Simmons and that, who wrote these regulations, responsible for these regulations, might sort of close down a little bit on it, the intention of the rule. Um, but it's it's you know it's still. In my book, the rules are the rules. The rules are what's written, the teams read them, and it's their responsibility to find the grey areas and try and exploit them. And this is one of those little bits of grey areas. But as I say, it could be putting your foot in the door just to try to to see how what you can get away with. And uh, on speaking to some of the people at Mercedes, they would like to not have that inner part of the wing. So, as I say, I think it would be good to see the rules... <laughs> tightened up a little bit I suppose you might call it in that area just to sort of make sure that the intention of the rules which was to not generate this what we used to call a Y250 vortex where you had quite a big change in the in the in the wing from a certain distance so 250 millimetres yeah. either side of the centre point yeah. isn't it hence Y250 but I mean uh, that all came about by the regulations the regulations wanted better clear air clear airflow to the underneath of the car so that you only allowed a, one element underneath in that section at, at 250 from car centre line. And then whenever the teams put the flaps on there, they found they could generate this vortex, which washed away the, the wake from the front wheel. Um, and that hurt cars that were coming up beside other cars, you know, in traffic, you, you lost huge amounts of downforce. So, um, you know, sometimes you can, you can shoot yourself in the foot. In that case, the, the FIA did shoot themselves in the foot by bringing in that regulation. It was there for years, but now they're worried about going back there. And, you know, as I say, this, to me, the Mercedes thing could be a step in that direction. But I think, as far as the rules are concerned, in my opinion, it's fully legal, and it would be fully legal with less elements in there even. What else has been catching your eye? You spent a bit of time studying the front wings. It's a bit of a work in progress for a piece we'll uh, likely run on the website. But are you seeing much variation in the front wing approach? And what can you discern from the fact there is that variation? Well, you know, I've got my own beliefs of, as to what what route I'd be taking if I was designing a car. And um, I'm not sitting here saying that I design it like a Red Bull because Red Bull's quick. I'm sitting here saying that I can understand the way the Red Bull load up the front wing. You know, they, they load it up from the inboard end and it, it span-wise, it, the loading um, diminishes as it goes outwards. Um, because the last thing you want to do is have a lot of load right in front of that front tyre. Because the front wheel has a movable thing. You know, when you get, run it accordingly, the first thing you do is steer the car. And that moves that front wheel across the wing. So if you've got that area working hard, it will change. And the last thing you need to do is to end up changing the balance of the car just with steering lock. Or you want to change the balance of the car with steering lock because you want the centre pressure to go forward if you can. But by having the wing loaded up there, there's a very good chance you'll actually reduce the front load with steering lock. So I think that uh, the least you can do with it in front of the front tyre, the more consistent you'll be with your, 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 your centre pressure parameters that you're trying to control. Um, and the Red Bull and a few other cars, the Ferrari, they all, to me, look, yep, they're following that path. Not just completely, but they are following that path well, quite decently. And then you get other cars that are, that are not following that path, that have got uh, complex trailing edges, I suppose you might call it, on the front wing. Which means that when you have that and you're, you're loading up a certain part of the span of the wing, um, more than the other parts of the span of the wing, you get transverse flow. So the, the flow always gets pulled to the hardest working part because it wants to get fed from somewhere. It can't take enough through the throat of the wing. So you get a lot of transverse flow, and that transverse flow then affects the underfloor. So you're you sort of, again, it's like a driver. You know, you're, you're, you can create your own problems, um, and then you spend a lot of time trying to solve them. So 
that's really what I'm looking at whenever I look at this front wing assembly and the following the suspension um, behind it because that's the area of the, the car for me that defines the flow structure that the rest of the car can do something with and I think you've got to get that right before you can get the rest of it right and of course the front wheel wake is so complicated it's why the aerodynamics of open wheel racing cars are so difficult because there's so many moving parts that yeah. can cause well, so, so much trouble yeah I mean a rotating wheel even causes trouble um, but whenever you've got a rotating wheel that's steered as well, the weight coming off that front tyre. I mean, quite a few years ago, um, people would go, you know, haywire whenever the tyre the, the company wanted to change the, the sort of profile of the sidewall of the tyre um, by an, a, la- a little bit. Um, and, uh, and nowadays, it's, that's good. It's constant because Pirelli are Pirelli. And their tyre just stays there, just stays the same. It's all good stuff. But... Um, then you imagine putting steering lock onto it, varying from zero going down the straight, which obviously I've never met a driver who complains about understeer going down the straight yet. But, um, you know, you go from that to, in a normal track, up to something like 10 or 12 degrees of, of steering lock, you know, road wheel steering lock. Um, Monaco through Lowe's Herpin, you know, you go up to like 20 degrees, but that's only one corner in the, in the season. Um, so you really got to cope with zero straight ahead in other words to get the maximum you can for braking through the stages to like 12 degrees we used to simulate steering lock at stages of zero three degrees six degrees nine degrees and 12 degrees and try and be able to plot the center pressure um, change through that period because 12 degrees is a low speed corner you know three degrees is a very high speed corner and the other the other two are in between there somewhere so you got to cater for all that and you've got to cater for all that with the tools that you can. And it's only that that you have aerodynamically to move the centre of pressure to suit what you want in those different sets of parameters. So that's one of your tools in your toolbox from a design point of view to get right. And it's also one of the tools in the toolbox you don't want to get wrong, you know, because it's no good if you went put a screw in the wall, um, picking out a you know, smoothing plane, you need a, you need a screwdriver. And, and so you've got certain things on the car that you can play with and, and do things with from a, from a sort of concept point of view. And the steering angle relative to centre pressure is, is the one you have. And you, may, you have to make that work for you and not against you. Yeah, that's an area of huge focus for these teams. But great to get your insights on the evolving tech of these cars. You'll be spending some more time prowling in the pit lane tomorrow to get a close look. And I'm sure we'll hear plenty from you again about the detail of these uh, 2024 F1 cars. So thank you, Gary. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. I'm back now with Scott and Samarth. Gary talked in depth about why the RB isn't just an RB19 copy technically, but can you explain why the whole AB team thing and complaints about Red Bull was a big talking point today? And I should add, you're going to need to take your mind off the phone you've just dropped and look very forlorn about. Uh, I'll, I'll leave you to where, Where's it fallen? You're, sa- you're sat on the sofa. The, it's down the side of the sofa because I think this is actually oh, a sofa bed. And I... I, I didn't I wasn't full on I'll get the phone in a bit I've just felt bad because I feared that I'd ruined your excellent take introducing the next segment of the I just felt I felt bad I'm sorry oh, it's just a little bit of background knowledge but you're, you're forgiven just don't <laughs> do it again don't thank, drop anything else thank you okay so on on this um, we 
it's interesting to me because Zach Brown at McLaren has been going on about uh, team collaborations for a very long time. As far as I can tell, it goes back to sort of early 2021, um, where this has been a quite prominent issue for him. But it's definitely become it's definitely become bigger in recent months, and it's, he's become a lot more vocal about it. Um, and that is partly because the argument that he's making has evolved. It's not just about team relationships, that kind of AB team in terms of supply deals and you know voting in packs and following, going against your own interest as an indiv- a smaller team to vote in the way that the A team is telling you to vote. So Hassan, Ferrari, for example, Red Bull and Red Bull 2, um, any other relationship that I've forgotten about Mercedes and Williams back in the day, or because I don't think it works quite that way now, but that's how it was perceived certainly a few years ago. Well, there always used to be political political alliance. I remember there were complaints because McLaren and Tyrrell were working quite close together on the political landscape. It was just a thing that happens. Yeah, so it's not just that anymore. Zach is making a very large amount of noise consistently now because he's very unhappy about the fact that there is one entity on the grid or one entity that owns two teams on the grid. He doesn't like dual team ownership. And I, from a basic point of view, like I see where he's coming from, I don't think in a closed shop like, as F1 has clearly become, this so-called franchise model that we're all meant to believe in, I don't think it's good um, from, a, from a variety point of view. Ten independent teams is better than nine independent teams and a second team owned by another one. Um, just from an uh, integrity point of view and an optics point of view, I think it's just better just to have pure independence between all of the teams and what I can't quite put my finger on at the moment is what has happened or what Zach fears will happen to, to, to make this such a prominent issue now. I can only assume it's because we're getting really into the thick of Concord negotiations and he wants this to be really rubber stamped for 2026 onwards in the, in the, in the rules for collaborations, what you can do as a constructor, what you can take from another team, but also in F1's governance itself so that's why I so I asked Zach that in the press conference today and then as Christian Horner was in the press conference with him I also asked for him and Lauren Mechias the RB team principal who was there as well for their response I wanted to give them the the right of reply to whatever it was Zach said and it was um yeah both sides made their points of view quite clear didn't they yeah clear. I didn't say they made a good argument yeah they made, a, I, they made their their points clear I I completely agree that from a perspective of sporting integrity you need to avoid dual ownership so I think that's something that for the future I think in the 26th Concord it shouldn't be allowed and that needs to just to be locked down now the Red Bull has had this second team for a long time and I do think that as part of that it has to be grandfathered in that they're allowed to keep hold of the two but what I want to see is quietly in the background Bernie Eccleston style find a way to encourage them to sell for a good fair price and they could sell that for a lot and just solve the problem that way you can't just ban Red Bull from owning that team just like that that's not fair and the trouble is because this argument as Zach made it and I think fundamentally he's correct but there's all these sort of suggestions about excessive collaboration between Red Bull and and RB that I don't think's there now I don't think that's a problem still as Gary Anderson talked about the car is very different still so that that's not an issue for me pretty it much could, every aero surface which they have to do themselves yeah. you can find differences in exactly exactly so i think it becomes very it becomes easier to defend when as christian horner did you can then say well they go their own way they've got different personnel different culture this that and the other and it also makes it easier for christian horner to at length come up with a completely pointless counter argument to the key point about dual ownership which is our red bulls was begged to buy we were begged to buy this team back in the day by fia and bernie eccleston he said they've done so much for f1 and that but he his argument was basically <laughs> we should be grateful for red bull not yeah. trying to undermine them yeah and but, but I think, and I've written about this on the race website, and this is the reason why I've tried to say, look, this isn't actually about the two Red Bull teams. It's just the principle that needs to be dealt with. So I do agree, but it was inevitable this was going to become more of a problem. They've obliterated the identity of their second team and called it RB. So they've done a spectacular own goal there because all their signalling says it's just a vassal team, which is just stupid on their part. So I understand why it's becoming a bit more of a thing again and, they could go too far at some point in the future. And I, I and, and I think it's fair to, it's understandable that Zach Brown's maybe a little bit concerned about that. But um, for me, it's 
it needs to take a step back a little bit, deal with the wider thing, gently encourage RB to be sold down the line, could be in a few years. And I think that's a better solution rather than this more confrontational approach. But one of the problems as well is that when Zach makes his argument, and I agree with you and to a point I agree with him, like I said, with that dual ownership, uh, dual ownership. but when he risks conflating the two and the, the collaboration and the ownership, that's where it becomes a problem because he was he made his case and at the end of it he even said uh, regarding the, the, the sharing of parts, he's like, oh, obviously that everything they're doing is within the rules. And as soon as you say that, as much as a lot of the other stuff makes sense, a lot of people will just hear you saying they're actually doing everything that they're allowed to do. I'm just annoyed that this is allowed to happen. And it, it then it doesn't bec- then then the nuance of your point and as you said that kind of that subtle the principle behind it is lost and it just becomes one team moaning about another team. And when does it blend into the other teams? Hassan Ferrari, I mean even Aston Martin uses some rear components from Mercedes. So where do you draw that line? It, it is a grey area after a while. Well, well, you need to be careful if you're McLaren because if we want to go down the pure constructor route, they need to start building their own engines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you can make the argument. Obviously, uh, you don't complete because uh, there are again. It's two issues. It's it's the dual ownership or the multiple ownership, not just of complete controlling stakes, but also minority ownerships. You could have an outside entity. It's Salba. It's a multiple teams or whatever. Yeah. So so that's one thing. You then got the extent of team collaborations, which is actually another debate. So th- there's a lot of things going on here, but. Uh, it's dangerous to conflate them all because then it makes it very easy for Christian Horner to to defend it because he's defending something that's slightly lost the point of its of its criticism because the problem is not what Red Bull and RB are doing at the moment that they're fine that that's that's not really the issue so anyway uh, we've hopefully sort of explained that reasonably well should we talk a bit about Haas because Oh, Scott's got a point. On the subject of um, Horner and other people being in the press conference, obviously um, him being on F- official media duty today was the... We, we spoke on the, the day one podcast that he he was spotted at, at the track and he is here just like he was at the launch. He's front and centre of the, of the team. He's still in his role while this investigation goes on into allegations about him in the background. So that meant that he was going to be in the press conference as he was Red Bull's team representative for the team principles portion of it uh, today and n- nothing really to, to, to report. All of the stuff that we said on the day one podcast is is still valid. Horner was asked a couple of specific questions about the, the process. Um, one that was a bit um, a bit more sort of harder at him and, and his position in it, which was along the lines of um, how we can take the investigation seriously when he's still in, in his role, which... You could tell from sort of Horner's um, like reaction to the question, the, the tone of his voice, and the the, the 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 way he kind of wore his response to to the question that he didn't particularly appreciate the question, and he dismissed it with quite a cold no comment. And he got asked immediately afterwards another question which related to the timeline, uh, which people might be inter- would be interested to know if it if there is a rough time for when it will be resolved. Horner didn't give one. He gave another no comment. But he clearly didn't object to that question in principle as much as the first one because the, the, the tone and manner of the answer was a little less dismissive and icy. Um, so nothing new from Horner himself. The main thing about that whole thing in the press conference today was it was kind of a visual rep- visual representation of the stuff that we've talked about. I think we've talked about it um, where people can listen, but we've also talked about it amongst ourselves about that kind of, this is what's going to happen if he's in a that public facing role while it's all going on. You just have that slightly awkward contrast of very public role, very big issue, but he can't talk about it publicly. And it just creates this kind of sideshow while the testing's going on, the team's about to start its preseason. So yeah, nothing massively new. We still await an outcome from that. It hasn't changed, but he's appeared. He's still sticking by that strategy we've talked about before. And I imagine that'll be the case until this is resolved either way. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk now about Haas. Samarth, because you've been following them a little bit today, they were slowest. So is everything terrible at Haas? Well, no. Um, it, there was really good noise coming out of Haas today. Ayo Komatsu was happy. He wasn't thrilled. He wasn't getting overexcited in his own words. He said that basically Haas got 85 to 90% of what they wanted to get right. Um, they've been focusing on long runs and trying to ditch the tyre issues that were plaguing them last year. 
Um, that's why we saw nothing spectacular for them. And, and that's, that's good. Maybe we'll see something fun at happy hour because you can tell, especially with Kevin Magnuson, that he wants to get out and set a really fast lap and get his you know, qualifying brain in, 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 you know, engaged. But uh, yeah, they were really focusing on just getting those bugs ironed out today. And Komatsu was really happy with it. I, th- I think they have made a bit of a step uh, I'm unsure as to how much they can compete with the, the rest of the midfield. It's going to be really hard for them. We know infrastructure-wise, they're probably not at the same level as some of the midfield teams. But it's all relative in F1, and they've made a relatively good step. What was uh, what was Nico Hulkenberg like? Because obviously, when we, we said on the podcast yesterday, didn't we, Magnussen was kind of quite pleased with how Haas was going about things under Komatsu's leadership. Hulkenberg is a bit, bit more of a... Um, bit more of a prickly character sometimes if he doesn't want to if he doesn't like the question you ask or doesn't just care about really talking about it especially in because you'd have spoken to Hulkenberg this the way I did Magnuson yesterday which was one of the the back of the garage he's just done tv it's basically much easier to still be in tv mode and bat away questions you don't like whereas when you're in the kind of media round table it's a bit more relaxed and forthcoming so it was what was, what was Hulk's take on things I do always wonder that about Nico Hulkenberg what kind of mood am I going to catch him in <laughs> Uh, and today in the desert heat, I will say he was a bit prickly, like a cactus. Um, <laughs> and he, but he, he was still a bit optimistic about you know the, the way Hass have ironed out those little creases and issues. He wasn't as over the moon. I'm not actually. That's not fair. Ayokamatsu wasn't over the moon. He was very measured in saying that they've made some steps up. But it didn't seem like he was totally thrilled. Now that might have been because of the drain cover fiasco and the fact that it was kind of baking hot in the middle of the day. But at the same time. Yeah, there is a lot of work to do at Haas still, and he did admit that, in all fairness. It it might be tough for them to kind of compete with the rest of the midfield. It'll take time. I do think the drivers are in quite different positions, aren't they? Because Magnussen is um, Magnussen's a little bit kind of like tied to that team. I feel like whatever future Magnussen still has in F1 is basically going to be whether Haas keeps him or not. I got the impression last year that Hulkenberg was like grateful for for the opportunity it has for as long as he basically put him in the shop window, which was pretty much one race weekend. And then I just got the impression, impression Hulkenberg quite quickly thought, I kind of need to move beyond this because I'm, I'm back. I'm good enough. Uh, I want more than this. And I, I might be of interest to some other teams. So just that could play out quite interestingly this year. I think Magnussen could quite easily end up playing the team game a little bit more because he thinks that will sort of keep him on longer term. And Hulkenberg could end up with a bit of a, well, I'm, I'm too good for this and start to, yeah, get a bit prickly, as we've said before. I think the encouraging thing is one of the, well, probably the main problem they had in terms of the, the tyre deck was an aero one last year. I think there was some little aero dropouts, some little stalls at the rear of the car, that kind of thing. And so I did ask Andrea Desordo, their new technical director, he was their chief designer earlier today, is the car more aerodynamically consistent and stable? Is that a step forward? He said, yeah, that was an objective, and from what we've seen, it is. So that's quite encouraging. And in fact, trackside, that has looked pretty pretty decent, pretty consistent, pretty nice. Doesn't look stunningly fast, but it it, it basically looks like a, a good, slightly slow car, as opposed to a bad, slightly slow car. Is it looking a little bit like Sauber last year? Start of last year? A little bit, yeah. Because I remember nice, this, but yeah. Yeah, because I just remember we, we watched in different places last year and then that car we both kind of described it as it doesn't have any obvious vices, but it it just never wows and it comes past. And I just got the impression from the way you talked about seeing the Haas that it's kind of ticking the same boxes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, it looks absolutely fine. I think we're kind of shaping up to have a back group that's that Haas is. I, think, I don't think they're cast off the back of it. They'll be in it. Williams showed some promise, um, but they're sort of still in that area. Sauber. I think Alpine's in it Alpine as well. seem to be struggling a bit. They say there's a lot to learn. They're focusing on all the plans and that, run plans and that kind of thing. But the and understanding the suspension changes, but the the car at no point trackside has looked anything more than kind of a a back group car. In so far as Bruno Fama talked about it and said, "Well, we're going to be in the middle somewhere," and I did sort of say to him, it "Looks like you're going to be sort of lower middle at, at best." But they're really looking longer term anyway. They're managing expectations, so. They seem relatively content with things, but I don't think that Alpine's going to be tearing up any uh, any trees at the moment. But yeah, very much. I, I think Haas is in that back group, not not in its own little twenty twenty one style class of its own. Nowhere. No, it's 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 interesting to see how that plays out. I was um, I had a brief chat with James Vowles at, at Williams 
um, during the day, a little bit of a catch up just to see how they were getting on relative to day one and the setback with the with the with the mileage. And he sort of said it's been calmer in so far as they've been able to get more work done, but you'd never make up what you lose on a on a. And it wasn't a disastrous first day, but it was obviously probably half the mileage that they wanted really. Um, they're encouraged by sort of similar to Haas in terms of like they've actually checked off quite a bit of their to-do list with what they were hoping the the new car would bring versus what they were expecting in simulation. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the Williams characteristics, the sort of spiteful car traits, and Williams feel like actually what they've seen now over these two days of testing that it's matching what they see on the sim, which is that those car traits are better. They're even hoping that they might be able to turn some of those weaknesses into strengths, which would um, be proof of of serious progress but they're, they're still not that vows wasn't talking at it's just like and that's it now we're leaving that back group behind he's very much kind of that's where we are in that cluster of four cars where there's probably a few temps in it maximum and it'll come down to driver and team execution who gets out of q1 but i i think it is those four at the back i have a feeling that rb is out of it and I don't. The, what I don't know is whether they're going to be in the Alpine role of last year, where they're in no man's land between a big fight in the top ten and the backmarkers, and they're just sort of floating between sort of a mid Q two position and Q three top ten every now and then, or if they're going to be latched onto that the tail end of that not lead group but the best of the rest group. Yeah, they're certainly pushing on ahead of that back group it looks like anyway so yeah we'll get a little bit more of an idea tomorrow obviously and then we'll be into the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend that'll give us some answers so hopefully we've been able to give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on here in Bahrain thanks very much to Scott and Samarth for your insight well that brings us to an end of our look back at day two in Bahrain head to the race.com for lots more analysis sign up to that members club offer I mentioned earlier on otherwise we'll be back with you tomorrow with everything you need to know from the world of F1 testing. The Athletic.